Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies. I am your host, Adam McNeil, PhD student in the Department of History at the University of Delaware. Today we have Dr. Stefan Wheelock, Associate Professor of English at George Mason University. Dr. Wheelock is here to discuss his UVA published UVA Press published book, Barbaric Culture and Black Critique, Black Anti-Slavery Writers, Religion, and the Slaveholding Atlantic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Wheelock. How are you? It's good to be here, and I'm feeling good, and we are uh, really interested in in, uh, the discussion today, and uh, yeah, feeling great. Good deal, man. Good deal. Um, And so before we get into, you know, your your book, Barbaric Culture and Black Critique, can you tell us what inspired you to write this book? Well, so I think that if I could tie the two pieces of this together, both the book, both as an introduction to the book and how I got there together, I'd start with really two basic concerns that I really had uh, going back to graduate school. First, I ask a basic question about Black intellectual history. What intellectual contribution did early Black authors make to the rise of a certain critical tradition around thinking about democracy, civilization, and such. And one of the things that really kind of troubled me when I was thinking through this was that there were intellectual traditions that were really being valued over others. I think a lot about the ways we, at least in my class, my graduate uh, seminar when I was taking it on, on Jürgen Habermas, how we kind of talked a lot about, and in some senses venerated, I thought, the reading of Habermas's understanding of how modernity came to be. This notion that through the process of reason and criticism in these enlightenment metropoles, speaking about the ideas of how reason and public opinion work together to produce a democratic sensibility, that that was really the birthing place for an enlightenment sensibility and then a kind of a revolutionary sensibility about the rise of modernity. And I just asked a simple question. I wanted to know, well, where is the slave in all of this? Where is the slave's point of view to use Frederick Douglass's terminology? Where was it? And that really kind of led me down a path to begin to think about these black intellectual traditions. But then you run into this 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 idea, this categorical kind of split that doesn't seem like a problem at first. But then I began to kind of think about it and I said, okay, well, what's happening here? 
On one hand, you have the tradition of Enlightenment criticism and Enlightenment philosophical systems saying all of this really good stuff about democracy, about the rise of democracy based on rational exchange, on the rise of criticism, so on and so forth. But then you have on this other side, the rise of a black anti-slavery critical tradition, much of the language um, that's being sort of used in it uh, is thought to be prophetic and religious in its output. And I thought to myself, well, yes, there is a black prophetic tradition, but is the black prophetic tradition somehow being read as inferior? Is there something about that prophetic tradition that we are missing? Do we think of it as a second tier model of intellectual production? And my argument was no. First of all, if we really kind of back up and we think really seriously about what we mean by prophecy, what we find is really a radical intellectual tradition, one that was really trying to critique the very terms of civilization, modernity and progress itself. But that means getting past a hurdle. That means stop that we need to stop for a second, pause for a second about the paradoxes and contradictions around how we talk about prophecy in the first place. On one hand, we say, well, blacks are able to produce work that may in some senses, in a profound sense, I think, see more deeply into Atlantic cultures into civilized Atlantic cultures than perhaps their white counterparts could. But then the paradox is, is once black prophetic traditions are allowed to speak their mind, they're thought of as answers for black issues for black people. And one of the things that I try to deal with in the barbaric culture, one of the the the, the uh, ways I address this problem is to suggest that the black prophetic tradition was speaking to everyone, that it was ultimately trying to say something about the very heart of civilization, that civilization itself risked becoming barbaric because of what slavery was doing, how it was an affecting the very ground of democracy, how it was warping and twisting ideas about reason, notions about God, the very meaning of progress itself, all of that was being changed and in a very bad way by slavery. And that's how I found myself really thinking about the book, struggling through the book, and even after the book, still asking some of the same questions for the second one. And can you talk to us about um, the influence of David Walker in your text? So I was I was spelled by David Walker as early as graduate school. Here is a fairly short text, probably not even 100 pages, a pamphlet. And here is a man who I believed was telling something deeply true, profoundly true about slavery and its cultural effects on American society. It's published in 1829. Historians have credited, credited it for, um, uh, for being one of the spurs to Nat Turner's rebellion, the slave insurrection and conspiracy. Um, but then I began to really read it. And I said to myself, I said, here is, here is a writer who is, is, operating really as a serious critic of American democracy. If democracy in the 1820s was very, was deeply informed by this kind of Protestant sensibility, that America itself was an elect nation, and that as an elect nation, its democracy would grow under God to become one of the greatest nations on the planet, Walker was saying something deeply different. He was saying that essentially these Christian Americans have formed a kind of covenant around the very idea of slavery itself, that slavery 
really is part of their rightful inheritance. And Walker really wanted to show his writing audiences that not only was this heretical as a, as a theological premise, but that it was perverse really as a democratic premise. And that what it would essentially lead society was to a kind of barbarism, a state-sanctioned form of barbarism, which in fact it was doing. I thought to myself, how can I take David Walker and make him an anchor for the book I was attempting to conceive and think about and think through? Autobah Kugano became the other end of that poll. Here is another man writing in 1787, publishing uh, a relatively unknown tract on uh, the slave trade in Britain. His work was not really reviewed by uh, uh, London, uh, the London press during the period. And he really would have dropped out of uh, history had it not been for um, archivists, for instance, in the early 19th century, like Henri Gregoire, who came along and said, hey, here's this black intellectual that we should be paying attention to. But in Kugano, I saw some of the same questions that David Walker was asking. These, these texts are very, very different. So in Kugano's thoughts and, and sentiments, he's really arguing against not only the slave trade, but uh, British slavery as such. And he's he but he is also like Walker making sort of a similar argument that slavery itself is having an effect on how British civilization is progressing on the whole. So between these two poles, I thought, well, how can we construct an anti-slavery critical tradition that would be the kind of intellectual tradition that rivals what we read from Enlightenment theorists? Sure. Do they have the elaborate systems that a person like Kant or Rousseau has? No. That 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 would be taking things too far. But do we have to have a philosophical system in order to really have a robust critical tradition that's speaking truth to power? And my contention in barbaric culture, barbaric culture is no, that we can have a robust critical tradition that may seem to us haphazard in its development, but it's very much alive and very necessary to how we think about the development of reason and democracy and all of these other values that we cherish. So between Kugano and Walker, this book begins to unfold. And, and I began to really kind of think about Aluda Equiano's um, interesting narrative, Life of Alula Equiano or Gustavus Vasa the African. And then I began to think about Mariah Stewart's essays and speeches as valuable contributors to this uh, um, emergent critical tradition. And that's kind of how the book really came together. And as someone, um, I'm not sure if I mentioned this before, uh, forgive me if I didn't, but I actually used to work at Boston African American National Historic Site up in Boston. Uh, for about nine months. And so who do I talk about all the time? You guessed it, David Walker and the great Mariah Stewart. So when I saw that you your book, um, I don't know, I, it was probably Amazon that I found it on, to be quite honest with you. And I just remember saying like, you 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 got me with a uh, Mariah and David, so so you're 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 coming on, right? You you got to you gotta come on the program, um, because I've written many many pages on them, um, individually and collectively, um, over the past about two years now, um, and it's because their 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 texts are so so rich, um, but they're also very rich because of for 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 reasons that are inside of your book they remind us of how far we haven't come and how their texts provide so much 
understanding for our contemporary moment um, and provide us somewhat of a roadmap of how to, you know, kind of, right, critique the barbarity of our uh, our contemporary culture. That's right. That's right. And I think that if I could just add to that, one of the things that we really shouldn't be confused about um, and I sound like I'm harking back to um, um, what I've just said earlier. We should not underestimate the power of the prophetic to be critically prescient about the moment then when American and British modernity were emerging and the moment we have now. Um, they were they saw the seabed. And Mariah Stewart and David Walker in particular were uh, a great pairing because both of these writers were really thinking about the emergence of the republic during the early national period. What would republican ideology be with blacks left in a kind of languishing um, stature or state? And I'm thinking specifically about Mariah Stewart. What would it be? with its notions and its practices of civic virtue completely in the hands of white males. What would the polis look like? And these were the kinds of questions that fascinated me then I, as I was writing the book. And, it, it, and if I was truthful, it was a struggle. I'm sitting, you know, kind of thinking, OK, how do I think both philosophically and histor- historically about these books? What kinds of insights they give? And that, I mean, that's just the agony of any kind of intellectual production. But that aside, reading these works carefully, you see you see a prescience emerging from both of these authors, from all of those authors, about what civilization is and what it could potentially be if slavery were left. And and also with that if, if it particular part too, I'm, to I also on. think about um, I also think about things like um, Christianity, right? Because um, one of the other parts about your book that I thought was also very interesting was the each writer's connection to uh, Christianity um, and also their right because you talked about you know uh, 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 being prophetic earlier and so you know the the world that the early national period of the United States but also uh, the late 18th century world brought about was Right. You talked about enlightenment, right? It was kind of like this push against um, uh, uh, Christianity and organized religion, um, at least in the sense that, you know, folks had seen in the 16th and the 17th centuries in the earlier part of the 18th. Right. Um, So I thought that that was a pretty critical intervention that you made um, in, in that particular area. Would you be able to talk about that a bit, too? Yes. So. One of the things that I have really tried to push back generally uh, uh, with in my scholarship, but also just in this book in particular, is this idea that somehow modernity simply arose out of an Enlightenment emphasis. That is only, I think, partly true. And the recent scholarship around um this particular subject matter, subject matter, excuse me, is bearing that out. You think about uh, a book like Simon mm, Gacondi's yep, yep. Slavery and the Culture of Taste, which attempted to really kind of think about how slavery was changing the discussion in the quote unquote drawing rooms of, of, of the metropolitan enlightenment. So you can see that there's a sort of geographical shift away from thinking about in the enlightenment and its idealism. Um, but there is also, I would argue, uh, uh, a shift away from simply its secularism. We we have to remember that what we have is a culture that's still very much immersed 
in Protestant principles, in theologically grounded notions about history and the future, in theologically informed philosophies of history. That doesn't mean that secularism wasn't beginning to make its mark, Enlightenment secularism wasn't um, beginning to make its mark, but what we see also is that there is a kind of tension that's happening between a Christian understanding of what should be moral and amoral, immoral in the rise of modernity versus a secular one. And this was also important for reasons regarding how we thought about race. Many of the secular theorists that we were reading were profoundly uh, racist in their anthropology on blacks and other and other peoples. That's not to say that Christians weren't either. They they too were were doing that. But much of what we saw in the anti-slavery campaign was a kind of concerted move to really think seriously about God's higher law for the equality of man. Much of that rhetoric was emanating out of emerging out of the anti-slavery campaign from both America and Britain during the 1770s onward. So I felt that it would be important for us to really locate and ground an understanding of what modernity actually was becoming. This liberal democratic understanding of modernity was becoming out of the view, coming out of the lens, out of the um, reflected through the prism of religious thought. So that's one of the reasons why I was really trying to push back against simply seeing modernity as a product of secularism. It was a product also of religious abolitionism, religious minded abolitionism. Those two, I think, were working together rather than one simply being privileged over the other. And I think that that's a very critical, um, like I mentioned before, I think that's a very critical intervention um, because Largely, when you think about the Enlightenment period and you think about, you know, Republican uh, Republicanism, um, secular uh, secular America, to use the United States as the prism for this uh, here, um, is typically seen through that particular lens, especially when you look at something like Thomas Jefferson and and his um, his ideals on on religion that uh, folks like. Uh, Annette Gordon-Reed and uh, 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 Peter Onuf and others speak about, um, but you know there there were there were other folks making interventions in this time as well, um, and so you know across the the, the Black Atlantic as you know as, uh, Paul Giroy uh, describes, um, and so as well with that too, um, one of the parts that I thought was very interesting about your text in total was how critical their texts are in this particular time frame and how though they're all in some ways connected to water right and that, that might not seem like a very you know huge thing to say but you know mariah stewart's father i mean father was her um her husband was a sailor um you know david walker you know uh, grew up uh in wilmington uh, uh, not Delaware, but uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, um, and um, you know, was in Charleston, and you know, he was in Boston, and so you know, very connected to the water, um, and and really every every person um, in, in the text are as well, and it's so interesting how you know when we conceive of the Black Atlantic, at some point, you know, their lives are all impacted. Um, through through sailing networks that don't necessarily have to do with coming over in the middle passage, shall we say? Yes, yes. I think that uh, first of all, you hit on something very important here, and it brings to mind uh, uh, Marcus Redeker's very important body of work on the water and how the Atlantic itself was really a space for the free floating, excuse the pun, uh, mm-hmm. transmission yeah. of ideas, you know, that these, inter- these, these, these currencies were not landlocked. 
because they were in 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 some in some real senses quite literally being transmitted trans uh uh, uh taken across the water uh floated around on ships some of them would be slave ships actually so you take a person like david walker if we can go back to him for a minute Think mm-hmm. about the profundity, the audacity of, of, of this intellectual, this mind, to sow copies of his um, uh, appeal into clothes that he was selling to slavery, um, I'm, I'm sorry, to, to, to sailors down mm-hmm. south on ships so that they could be distributed to uh, uh both anti-slavery sympathizers and the slaves themselves were those who were uh, literate. Here we have a really serious and, and, and very material instance of radicalism being taken down river and taken down the Atlantic. Um, this is how we begin to see certain ideological currencies being shopped around. The idea, the very notion, if we go back to the Saint-Domingue Revolution, 1791 to 1804, how is this affecting someone like David Walker or Denmark Vesey? Well, we have refugees coming from both white and black across the water to North America, sharing their stories of a revolution by slaves, throwing off oppressors from their island. And then this this inspires African-Americans to think about the possibilities for slave rebellion, slave insurrection, and, and, and revolution on the mainland. So water is an extremely important typology, partly because of its ability to carry ideas, but also through its capacity to unite a world that would otherwise have been disparate in its thinking and its ideas. Instead of us having sort of these fractured moments where certain currency, intellectual currencies are happening in one place and other intellectual currencies are happening in another place, we have an Atlantic world being brought together by slavery empire, but also by um, transcultural and transnational activities of resistance brought about by water yeah and and that and that's exactly why i brought up that particular point because you know i i had always been fascinated um you know growing up in florida by you know a a lot of times you know like um growing up in florida you know obviously the hurricanes and such and so some of my friends and i would sometimes joke and be like well man for slavery and and all this injustice man that's why these hurricanes coming off africa and knocking knocking these uh these nations off right specifically the united states right you know come and knock them off right um and, and so obviously it's not it's not that simple considering how you know the majority of the Caribbean islands are you know black but you know that that we ain't thinking about that you know we're just thinking about come on beat, beat the United States right um but in, but in particular um a, a part of that also comes from the thought of um may, maybe not you know the your writer the writers that you speak about using that kind of language like the hurricane coming back to bite uh, the, the 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 west per se but it a lot of your book also to me there's a particular symbolism involved in how slavery was and and the and slavery colonialism and imperialism that's going on during this time frame um those are things that the nations involved are going to have to right there is going to come a judgment, right? And that also the you're committing these atrocities against a group of people without realizing what it's also doing to you. And I thought like, and, and so that to me was like, whoo! I feel like I'm back in the in the AME church real quick, man. And we 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 you know it, it's it's happening right now, man. It's like a revival or something. And so like that kind of um, that that feeling was what I got from reading many sections of your book, and not even just from simply reading your the the, the title of of, uh, of your uh, of your book. 
Yes. So one of the, I mean, we joke around about, you know, uh, about hurricanes and the such, but we, we, we need to understand that the idea of the prophetic, and I'm thinking a lot about the conversations I've had with my father about this, we tend to think about uh, the prophetic as this uh, fortune telling. Right. That somehow this is going to happen. And in some far distant moment in the future, uh, this is going to happen. And I, I would uh, and, and, and as my father has said to me on numerous occasions, that's a vulgar reading of of what the prophetic actually is. The prophetic is really in, 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 in a profound sense, a telling forth to use my my father's words, rather than a fortune telling. It is about really awakening society out of its slumber into its reality. Things may not happen the way that the prophetic uh, discourse says that they will, but if we look on the inside of how the prophet, whoever the prophet is, slash intellectual is, if we look on the inside of what that person is actually trying to say, what we find is that that person is really saying that the seeds for some catastrophe of some kind are there, that there is something in the works, whether it's social, ecological, we could go on and on, and find that if we look deeply enough in the seedbed of society as we understand it, that myself as a prophet is trying to show you, then you can actually see how logically we end up at a kind of cataclysm or catastrophe in history. If we continue with slavery and its barbaric um, uh, operations, we can't be surprised if there's a mass slave insurrection or if something in society that we possibly could not have expected, possibly around capitalism, would emerge because of that. Simply put, in the process of telling for these black authors and their white anti-slavery sympathizers could really talk about society and its dark potential. That's what the prophetic really does. It doesn't, it's not that we're going to get an exact outcome the way that they said things were going to happen. We didn't get an exact outcome um, uh, the way that Walker uh, prophesied. Um, Ian Fensith makes a very important point about Walker that much of what we saw at the end of Walker, the the the, the relative vagueness around uh, many of his ideas about how this, what form this revolution is going to take, um, I think is true. But that I don't think that that I think that that in some senses this is not uh, about Fensith at all, but. Generally, it's besides the point that we look to what Walker's prophetic pronouncements actually were. What he was really giving us was something like a prophetic critique. Here here are the seedbeds for society, and here is where society could potentially go. And in that way, I think Walker and, and Stewart were really on the money. Frederick Douglass, we can end this, this part with Douglass. When Douglass says that America was false to the past, false to the present, and resolutely binds herself to be false to the future. That's both prophetic, but also there is a truth telling in that. One that I don't think we, we, we can easily just um, uh, jump over in the name of progress. And, and I think that you know the the connection that you just made there is very interesting because um all of the you know all of the folks that you mentioned right they they had a you know a very you know they had a very prophetic you know uh, a notion of history um they had a very prophetic notion of of their place kind of in the history as well to a certain degree um you know and so i think that you know, and all of them, um, you know, all of them had, 
a lot to say about the issue of the contradiction um, of living in a nation that proclaims itself to be something and their mere presence within it is there to rebuke such statement, right? And I think that in and of itself, right? I, I, I wish I can cite who I heard this from specifically, but over the last couple of years, I heard someone say, black folks in the United States are, and, and, and black folks within the quote unquote Western world in general are a rebuke to the greatness, right? At times that they can, right, they can aid, right, that that process, right? You have the Buffalo soldiers who are going out west to complete manifest destiny, while at other times they are, right, they're trying to um, undermine empire. And effectively, America, after beating the world's greatest empire at the time, obviously they they have to be considered an empire, right? Even though they haven't, you know, quote unquote, taken over um, any international spaces, right? But then again, what's what's uh, what, what's Indian removal, but a form of imperialism, right? And by the 1890s, with the with the fight over Cuba, we're definitely beginning to see America emerge in its t- early 20th century form as uh, uh, the heir to a kind of. Uh, new world imperialism, without a doubt. This was slow and hazard and dragging, but um, was nevertheless happening right before our eyes, before the eyes of a person like Ida B. Wells. Um, she, she's herself, if I can kind of go off track, I'll come back to it. She herself, through her journalism, was dealing with this question of the intersections of of this national campaign against lynching and America's sense of its own greatness um, in its efforts to really extend itself abroad. So black people have always had, um, uh, I think, a sense of both cynicism, but also ambivalence and also hope. I, 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 uh, a mix of these things in America's potential for greatness, but also realizing that America has not quite lived up to those ideals, that it is in some senses reconstructing and reproducing its own false narrative, its own false mythology. And I use that word in, 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 in the chapter on Walker a lot about uh, false grammars and false mythologies, that there is a falsity of language around the idea that America is simply this nation, this home, this land of the free and home of the brave. I hope I haven't messed up that phrasing too much. Or that we, 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 we are, we are uh, uh, that we are essentially um, a Christian and redeemed nation. These are ideas that um, that Walker saw, thought that they needed a kind of critical inter- interrogation because they risked becoming really sort of mythologies that would encrust a, 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 an unprecedented form of brutality. Yes, and I also think that you know, that, that brutality, um, comes in so many different forms, right? It could be, you know, sucking the hope out of someone. It could be trading them. It could be lynching them. It could be beheading their, their, you know, it could be selling their children away, right? It could be, you know, that, and that's the thing about a word like brutality. It can be used in so many different ways that are not even physical, right? And so, you know, I think that, um, some could call it social death. Some like like I called it dissociative violence. You know, I, but but at the end of the day, there are just varying degrees of um, uh, of brutality, right? And so you know, but that brutality, uh, you know, we uh, at University of Delaware uh, this this week we had the honor of uh, of having Jennifer, uh, Dr. Jennifer Morgan, uh, of laboring women fame, come to campus. 
And to, to speak to our Black Atlantic in the Archive course, shout out to Laura Helton, Molly White, and also Brandy Locke for making that happen. Shout out to y'all. Um, but in particular, when we talk about how capitalism and specifically the racial capitalism that uh, the late great Sedgwick Robinson would talk about, um, you can't have... You, you can't have racial capitalism unless you have slavery, right? That Or vice versa. Um, and so really that just means that the, con- the societies that which we live in here in the UK, right, anywhere can't happen unless you have slavery. Point blank, period. And so really once you, once you get to that, it, everything else is kind of like, well... It makes things. It makes looking at life a lot easier to a certain degree because you can always go back to the foundational root. It's not maybe that easy to just go straight to it. You know, there, there's obvious uh, contextual issues depending on on the on the empire you look at, but effectually, uh, uh, you know, that's what it is. Um, at least in my interpretation and many others. No, I, I think I think that that's right, and this is one of the ways in which mythology really works, and tragically so, right? That somehow slavery itself was an unfortunate hiccup uh, in what was otherwise the linear progress of American modernity, and I really believe that that narrative is 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 absolutely false. But that that narrative's falsehood is, again, enshrined in this mythological idea about America's democratic greatness. Um, One of the things that that really, really kind of struck me about Walker in particular was his capacity to see in black folk and in the anti-slavery campaign to begin to tear that mythology down literally, if they have to, right? What does he do with Thomas Jefferson? When he speaks about Thomas Jefferson, Walker's Thomas Jefferson is interesting because it's not a Thomas Jefferson in his in his mindset that really was, you know, anti-slavery in all sincerity, but was uh, um, not courageous enough to embrace it. That's not the kind of anti-slavery. That's not the kind of figure uh, Thomas Jefferson is. Thomas Jefferson, for him, for for Walker, was a person engaged in really injuring blacks through the, the, the kinds of moral and, and political conclusions he was making about the capacities for of Black people to, 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 to reason, to live, to live as equal human beings in America, et cetera, et cetera. So for Walker, Walker says, well, hey, this, this, this man, Thomas Jefferson, while he certainly did good things for uh, uh, for the founding of America, we should not underestimate the ways in which he enacted, participated, advanced a form of racial injury against black folk, both literally in 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 the form of his being a plantation owner, but also. Um, uh, metaphorically and symbolically in these very measured, um, lofty sounding tracks that he writes on, 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 on blacks capacities for, um, civic engagement and, uh, to actually be participants in this evolving democracy. Right. I mean, so, we have to we have to we have to remind ourselves that part of what we see in that early black atlantic tradition is an attempt and an effort to set the record straight about how slavery itself was really warping how people reasoned about another group of people mm. that that reasoning was off because of certain things that slavery had allowed in culture and society as a whole. 
And that was, those were the kinds of things that I was really trying to deal with um, on a discursive level in this um, in this first book of mine. And, and what it also brings up to me is black folks within this black Atlantic frame are really writing histories, right? They're, they're, they're writing, they're right. Not only writing histories of themselves, but they're re they're reinscribing what it means to be in this moment, even though as a whole within a, a particular community, right? Slavery, death, fugitivity is all around you and yet you're you're producing right you're letting that i think fuel the writing that you're doing and so it almost to a certain degree makes me think about um you know so so the the prominent blurb on the back of your book comes from you know a uh, uh, dr john uh, Ernest, right and and his work with uh, liberation historiography and you know that i i can see kind of like the 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 conversation the building uh, uh, from that is is that is that correct in in my um, assessment or totally off or oh absolutely absolutely I mean my 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 origins uh, can be traced directly back to him uh, to Marcus Redeker to um, uh, 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 the great Pannonian Scott, the great scholar of Fanon, uh, Lewis Gordon, and with 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 John Ernest, I think that what I learned from him was to really be able to seriously take the religious writings, their religious renderings of history and its development, seriously. If you notice in the work in liberation historiography, John Ernest begins with a discussion, an important discussion um, about James Cone. And what was James Cone attempting to do to really reform how we think about God, the Christ figure and the framework that that has provided for Protestant society outside of the racial terms of white supremacy. And I think that what John Ernest does is that part of the argument, it's not fully the argument, but a bit of the argument is that these, that these authors that we're reading uh, um, from, uh, from, Banneker on up, right? Or um, as we're reading, for instance, through a person like Harriet Jacobs, that they are really in some senses preparing for a different reading of history, not simply an alternative reading of history. These aren't alternative facts, right? <laughs> but a reading of history that that bases itself in the words that you just used in thinking about what society means for a fugitive slave attempting to free themselves from freedom. I mean, I'm sorry, from slavery. Uh, I think about the 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 the, the idea that. Uh, Professor Neil Roberts puts uh, puts forward this idea of freedom as marinage, freedom as flight. Right. This is a this is a really radically alternative understanding of what freedom is in, in, in the liberal democratic tradition. It's the idea that freedom somehow is static. You're voting, you're participating, participating in the growth and evolution of the republic. But that's not the way that it was working for slaves. Harriet Jacobs some of her best chapters in the book are on her discussion of attempting to flee her 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 master James Norcliffe, um, attempting to go up north, hide from him, and then getting up getting up north and discovering that the north, in some senses, is in, in is complicit with the south in preserving this institution and its uh, slavery um, as an institution and its norms. Um, that to me is an important undercurrent in the way that we think about how history should be approached. 
and that other forms of history that don't deal with this are probably missing something crucial about how America came to be. So in the final couple minutes that we got you, um, can you tell us about this, uh, this new work that you're producing? Yeah, so the title of this new work, well, the tentative title for it is One Nation Unredeemed, How Slavery Damned American Progress. And what I really want to do is broaden out the discussion I was having in barbaric culture. I'm interested in this question, this idea about America as a redeemer nation. And my big thesis is that the very idea about America as a place of redemption itself was um, framed in part as a kind of violent gesture against subject Black populations and subject Native American populations. So what I try to do is to remove this to move this the, the the discussion about America as an exceptional nation or a redeemed nation, and that was originally what it was thought of, as as a nation that was above all here to really save all of us. I want to really kind of move that discussion to well, how did slavery itself affect how we thought about America's practices of redemption. If you think about the um, the late 1800s, specifically um, after 1875, with the redeemers coming from the South, these were uh, people who were on the side oftentimes of terrorists uh, who looked to reunify, to bring the South back to back into the Republic, into the American Republic, but to also fully and functionally strip uh, black people of their rights. And they were technically called the redeemers. So I think we need to ask questions about these, uh, about theological tropes like redemption to see how those theological tropes are raced and how they really built on a, on a violent history of the slave trade and slavery. Well, that sounds like another great project that we are going to make sure to get you on the pro, uh, on the program for. Um, and so thank you so much for uh, sitting down uh, with, with me today. And um, once again, folks, we have had Dr. Stefan Wheelock, Associate Professor of English at George Mason University. Um, and he's been on the program to speak about his book published by our friends at UVA Press entitled Barbaric Culture and Black Critique, Black Anti-Slavery Writers, Religion, and the Slaveholding Atlantic. Until next time, folks, I am your host, Adam McNeil, PhD student in the Department of History at the University of Delaware. Over and out. Out.